0: So, uh, we're in a passage today that is a little rough. I just want to go and say that out front. I feel like I owe it to you. Um, We're going to be in Matthew 23 today. Um, You know, sometimes when you're trying to describe something or someone or a thing to a person, you'll do it by contrast, right? So you'll say, they're not like that person or this thing's not like that. Um, That's what Jesus is doing in this text in Matthew 23. He's telling his disciples what he wants them to not be. Um, and from that, uh, learn a little bit more about he wants, what he wants them to be. So, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 23, and I'm going to read a chunk of this passage to us. I'm going to kind of jump on a few, to a few of these verses throughout the message, but I want to read most of the passage just so you guys can get a feel for um, this passage. So, Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. For the greatest among you shall be your servant." Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. If you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What are you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done... Without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. I gave that one its own slide. (laughs) Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. Okay, that was fun. Um. Yeah, so let's, again, kind of set the stage here. Um, Jesus, actually, let me, let me pray for us. We probably need some prayer after that. <laughs> Lord, thank you for this passage. Lord, we just say, um, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord, and we need Matthew 23. Um, you seem to think so, Jesus, because you're talking to your disciples about which, what you want them to not be, and we want to know what that is, Lord. Um, help us. Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to make sure we're clear on uh, who is being talked to in this passage. So although the passage is about the scribes and Pharisees, um, it's not to them, right? So it's to specifically the crowds and to the disciples that Jesus is talking to as he's talking about the scribes and Pharisees. Um, I remember a time I was... uh, outside at Divinity School at Beeson, and I was out on the quad at Sanford reading my Bible on a bench, and I was reading Matthew 23. And um, a friend of mine walked up, and he said, hey, what you reading? I said, man, Matthew 23, can you believe they were like this? And he goes, yeah, when I read Matthew 23, I mostly just think about how I subtly live for the praise of man, and and I, you know, kind of live for, you know, their acclamation, and I really should be more of a person of mercy than I am. I said, oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. I'm a Matthew 23 man. I mean, it's like my life passage. Um, But I think the point is, is like, this really is relevant to everyone, because the truth is this, is we'll just, religious legalism might not be your thing, right? But we'll we'll just find a different kind of social narcotic to numb us to being responsive to people, responsive to God, you'll just find a different way, right? Um, And I think one of the ways that that's happening in our time is in large part um, through hurry and distraction, which is one of the things I want to get to today. But let's first look at what Jesus says about them, right? So he says, um, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They present a public image that will encourage others to think well of them. Doesn't everybody. They love, their pla- they love the place of honor and public recognition. They come up with religious language to break their verbal commitments. They prioritize things like tithing, lesser virtues, over becoming a person of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Their hearts are greedy and self-indulgent. And in the verses beyond what I read, it talks about how um, they essentially, uh, like they don't prize the present prophetic word of God in the moment, which proves, Jesus says, that you guys would have killed the prophets just like your fathers. Um, so they're not hungry for, for the voice of God either. Uh, so that's, that's the, the group here, right? Um, you know, I think that, Interestingly, I think, I think religious legalism is kind of on decline in, in America. You may say, like, Gabriel, you didn't grow up in the church I grew up in. You wouldn't say that. Um, and that may be true. I actually grew up in this church, <laughs> which is an awesome church. It was not very legalistic. Um, so I think, but I think there's, uh, in, in overall, in general, I think religious legalism is more or less on decline. Um, So that may not be like your thing or most people's thing these days, but I think we just find other ways to uh, just live for the approval of others, right? We just find other ways to um, kind of live for lesser virtues uh, rather than developing more important things like becoming a person of mercy and such. Um, So... I want to bring up this phrase. So this is a phrase by John Mark Comer, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Our staff actually reading a book by Comer on the, by this title. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry is a phrase that Comer stole from a guy named John Ortberg, who stole it from a guy named Dallas Willard, who stole it from me. Um, so, But as far as I know, that phrase originates with uh, Dallas Willard. And, and people would come to Dallas and they would say, um, you know, I just feel so disconnected from God. I just feel so emotionally, like, bankrupt. I just feel like I have nothing at the end of my field. I just feel empty. Um, like, how can I connect and live more authentically uh, with people and God? And, and Dallas Lord would would almost always say something to the effect of, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, these days, um, we're so busy uh, we're just so busy and so overcommitted. Uh, of course, we work hard, but even when we get off work, our mind is still just in such a hurried state. We, The second we have a, a dull moment, we reach for one of our de- devices because, God forbid, we go a moment without being inter- amused and entertained. Um, but we just are so busy these days, and psychologists have referred to this as chronic busyness as they diagnose their so many of their clients, and this is basically most of America right now, is they're just engaged in this kind of chronic busyness, um, what Bill Gates has referred to as busy as the new stupid. Um, And there's a lot to show that like, just excessive busyness and overcommitment and and our minds never having a break, it actually is making us dumber um, in the sense that we're less capable of sustained thought we're less, we, you know, we read articles now instead of books. We're, we just are constantly getting notifications in the feed and the 24-hour news cycle. And um, we're, less ability, we're less able to really reflect on things and ideas in our day. And, I, um, you know, that's just so much of what's becoming our norm um, and encouraged to be our norm. Um, so let me give you all a quiz for a second. So before Thomas Edison came up with the light bulb, Americans got a lot more sleep, if you can imagine, Um, because it's like, well, we could stare at each other for another three hours under candlelight, or we could go to bed. So how much sleep do you think most Americans got, on average, before the light bulb? The answer is 11 hours. 11 hours, Um, which makes sense, right? I mean, people's lives are mostly governed by the sun, Um, for pretty much all of human history. It's only been in a very recent human history that we've um, done this, and now we're pushing our bodies to, it, to their physical limits, getting six hours of sleep a night, this kind of thing. Now, Jordan and I don't get as much sleep as we'd like, but the reason for that can be found downstairs in a room off the fellowship hall. <laughs> I just gave you directions to the nursery if you didn't know. Um, but I think that that's what's happening is we're finding just more ways to do more things in less time, um, and that's becoming our norm. And even when we're not sleeping um, and we're not working, we're just distracting ourselves and musing ourselves to no end. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor asked her students, why are you guys like always on your cell phones, like constantly on your cell phones? And she got you know, different answers, and one of the answers was, without our phones, you'd never know what was going on beyond your own little world. I think it's actually our own little world that we need to be paying more attention to. I know at least that's true for me. I want to be paying more attention to my own little world. Um, James K. Smith is an evangelical author who's uh, been very influential in recent years. Um, And one of the things he's pointed out is that we act out of our desires, right? So you, you do essentially what you desire to do. Even if you hate your job, you still do your job because there's competing uh, factors that lead you to still do your job, even if you don't like your job, right? So ultimately, we act out of our desires. And uh, Smith has talked about how historically in Western civilization, of which we're a part, uh, we've tended to assume, uh, to overemphasize the role of reason and belief in forming our desires. Basically, if you believe right, you live right, right? And I think there is, there is some truth to believe right, live right. Um, but what Smith has pointed out is we've really over-exaggerated that to the point where we have um, forgotten something else, that in large part, our desires are shaped by our habits. So take, for example, like I may believe that a healthy diet is a good thing, that a balanced diet is a good thing. But as long as my eating habits are shaped around fried food, it's unlikely that simply my belief that a a balanced diet's a good thing is going to override my cravings, my desires for fried food. It's only when I begin slowly introducing changes into my eating habits um, that those habits will then shape new desires and new cravings for different kinds of food. And that'll be reinforced by my belief that a balanced diet's a good thing. Does that make sense? Um, So we've overemphasized the idea of just believe right, live right. There's a a very, and even studies are more and more showing that your habits really have a, a massive role in shaping your desires. And again, you act out of your desires. So, I think Jesus in many ways, coming back to our passage, is getting at that. When he says, he said to his disciples, to the, to the crowds, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, look, they're giving you great beliefs and great doctrines, and, and do them. Like the, the, the experts in the Torah are preaching sermons on Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're preaching sermons on Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. They're preaching sermons on Micah 6.8. What is the Lord required of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, faithfully before your God, right? So they're giving you great beliefs and great content, but their own living, their own habits are not producing those same beliefs in their own life. So I want you to adopt a different way of living. Simply the beliefs on their own are going to produce the results that I'm after. Because um, I think these days, uh, that is being so challenged. I think the kind of habits we want to form are being so challenged, mostly just by busyness. Because I'll, I think if we did a poll of this room, most of you would be like, I want to pray more. Sure, I want to read my Bible more. I want to be more present with my child. I want to be more emotionally invested with my spouse. Like, I think... It's not an issue of belief, right? It's not an issue of, of polls. Um, so much of the challenge is that our lifestyle doesn't produce the kind of works that Jesus is after. Um, John Mark Comer sat down with a, a leading psychologist, who a Christian psychologist who had been practicing for over 40 years and kind of laid out their, the plan of discipleship for their church up in Portland and he said, hey, give me feedback, what do you think? Do you like it, do you not like it, what are the problems? And the guy said, this is great, I like it, it's good. Your biggest problem is going to be time. And then he said, most people are just too busy to live emotionally healthy and spiritually rich lives. And When I heard that both in a sermon I listened to by him and in reading it in his book, like that just struck me um, as, I think, so true that, most people are just too busy to, to live in a way that is processing their emotions within them and people around them and their relationships and really investing into spiritual depth. I think this is the great challenge of our time, um, is that. So, I, you may have noticed, I gave you guys sermon notes. Um, some of y'all thought this day would never come. I've gifted you sermon notes. If you want to follow along um, with my sermon, go for it. I have the three kind of major, main sections of my sermon, which I never tell you, but they're always there. Um, but today, you, you can find out what they are. And there's a few prompts and questions that may be helpful for you as you're dialoguing with the Lord. I hope that even as I'm preaching, you can be thinking, God, what are some things that you might be speaking to me about my life? And some of the questions in the sermon notes could be helpful for that. They're there for you if you would like that. Um, so, the two main things I think that uh, Jesus says in this passage that I just want to pull out are be, He wants His disciples, by contrast, to become people who are responsive to others and people who are tending to their own inner life with God. And so that's what I mainly want to talk about today. So, in the next verse, He says, they, that's the, the Torah experts and the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear. He laid them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to help them. It's almost like Jesus says, you guys kind of enjoy this, don't you? Like you kind of enjoy watching people just struggle under this burden, and you're not even for a second going to lift a finger to help them. Like you almost like get some pleasure from that, which is really sad what Jesus is uh, accusing them of. Um, there's a story about a pastor in LA named Sean Bolts, and he was sitting in his office one day. Some entertainer in Hollywood had just gotten saved, and he was still like pretty confused, and um, his life was still pretty messed up. And Sean, Sean Bolt's um, like secretary was talking to him, and he's like, "I just don't, I just don't buy it. I just, I'm not sure this dude's really saved." Um, and Sean Bolt was about to say something negative, but then he just stopped and he said, "He said, you know, I just want to believe that." He's not a finished product, that God's going to complete a good work in him, and that he's got a lot of choices he could make right now in life and publicly. And if he's publicly professing Christ, I just want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Because to be honest, I'd like to believe that if he called me right now, I would be able to say, I would be able to respond to him with love and care, and I would be for him. No sooner did he said that than they get an unlisted call to their church, and this guy's called up asking to speak to Sean. And it's like God was testing his resolve. Are you going to be a person who is safe? Like, can I actually entrust people to you? Can I entrust my friend to you who's struggling through this Jesus thing, through this faith thing? And I think that's what Jesus is looking for when he's talking to his disciples in this passage, that I want you guys, I want my disciples to be people characterized by love, that you're for people. You're not almost gleeful to see them struggling and barely making it, and they might probably not. They're going to burn out, I think. Like, Jesus is wanting to see people that are, he can entrust people with. Amen? And that's, that's who I want to be. I want to be someone that Jesus can say, you know, Gabriel's safe with this person. He's going to believe and want the best for them. And I think that's what Jesus is wanting in this passage. Um, So he goes on, and it says a similar thing in verse 23, right? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglected the weightier matters of the law. Things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. This, This, by the way, this is like a quick freebie, is basically like me and Jordan's theology of tithing. So Jesus basically says, like, wow, look at you guys. Like, you literally, I can just see y'all, like, in your bedroom, parceling out a tenth of your cumin. Like, you are so, like, uh, good at tithing that you've given God literally a tenth of your herbs. Like, can we get a hand clap for these guys? Um, and But then he says, you're really good at that, but you're not good at being a merciful person, right? Um, but then he says... These you should have done, justice, mercy, and faithfulness without neglecting the others, so Jesus is basically saying, "Yes, tithe, tithing's good, you should tithe. Just make sure that you 're not exaggerating tithing like it 's something more important than weightier matters of the way I want you to live in this world, like becoming a person of justice so that 's basically why are we tithe it 's like, yeah, we tithe because it 's what we should do, and it 's a blessing to to be a blessing with our resources uh, to the things god 's called us to give to, but It certainly is not more important than many, many other things. Um, But the point of this passage, I think, is that Jesus is saying, you've so dedicated your life to becoming a person really good at tithing that you have not dedicated time to becoming a person who's growing in justice. Right? So essentially, they've cultivated tithing habits as opposed to mercy habits. Does that make sense? The habits that are at play in their life have produced a person who's excellent at tithing, but not a person who is wired to respond in mercy. And that's what Jesus is after for his disciples in this passage. Because here's the point. The Pharisees and scribes always had the right answer, right? They always had the right, properly basic belief, Um they always knew that what how they should be living is to love God and love people. Um, those were their main sermon points, right? Um, and of course, in, in this verse, Jesus is alluding to Micah six eight that that you would be a person who does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly or faithfully before God. I mean, they're like Jesus. Micah six is my life verse. Like, what do you mean? This is this is like my like. This is what I live by, right? Um, so, like it, they would have dis, they would have seen themselves as being someone doing this, right? Someone preaching this, um, but Jesus is seeing through it. Um, so they always had the right answers. The question is, what kind of life were their habits producing? And I think that's really the question that Jesus is pressing in on his disciples in this passage. That you can have the right answers too. Um, Susie Silk said, doing justice means being interruptible. And I think um, we could add loving mercy means being interruptible, especially in this day and age, uh, means being interruptible. You know, as parents, you guys all know, like there's a big difference between, that's amazing, do it again, and that's amazing, do it again, right? And your kids know that, we feel that. Um, but we would be able to be interruptible, and doesn't mean your kids have the right to command your every moment. I get that, um, but that we—that love looks basically—is what I'm trying to say. Love looks, love listens. Um, where where you're giving your attention to, your focus to, is basically where you're giving your love. Is basically where you're exercising your desires, essentially. Um, something to keep in mind. Um, so right now, I don't know, maybe, well, maybe a few months ago, Adeline learned um, that, like, if I say ow, my dad responds really quickly. So, like, if, you know, I, I think at some point I was doing something, and she was, like, hurt, and I was like, oh, my gosh, let me help you. And uh, so she she quickly learned that, and within, like, a week started manipulating me. Um, <laughs> So, like, you know, we'll be at the house, and she's doing something. I'm trying to, like, get her out of something she's doing, and she's like, ow, 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 ow! And um, so I'll be like, oh, um, and then I'm like, okay, you're fine. Um, and so, which is really cute, like, in the privacy of our home, not so much at Publix. <laughs> so, like, we'll be at Publix, and she's, you know, reaching for stuff, like, on the shelf or whatever. She's trying to stand up out of the, out of the cart, and I'll like try to put her back down. She's like, ow, ow, ow. Um, I'm like, like, you're fine, you're fine. I like, ow, ow. People are walking by, hey, how you doing? You know, <laughs> l- looking for, over my shoulder for DHR. You know, she's okay. Um, but Adeline's learned that daddy's responsive to my pain, uh, a fact that she's quickly learned to manipulate. And, you know, I think that for us, Jesus is pressing on, on us in this passage that are you a people that are, that are responsive to people around you? To the pain of others? When you see people struggling, are you unmoved by that? When you see people in need of justice, are you unmoved by that because your habits have produced you to be a different kind of person? Are you moved to mercy? To actually doing mercy is a, is a doing, it's an action verb, by the way. Compassion is a feeling verb. Um, so at the same time, um, I don't know if you guys have experienced seasons of life where someone kind of took you for a ride, where you feel like someone was manipulating you. Um, I mean, I've been in ministry, and I know what that can be like, where someone's maybe playing on your compassion or mercy. Um, But I don't know about you, but ultimately, I would much rather be a person that's sometimes taken advantage of than being someone who is unmoved, who's unresponsive to people around me. I want to be someone, and I think that's what Jesus is saying in this passage, is that are you someone who is moved, who's responsive to the people around you, to the suffering around you, to the needs around you. Um, and the next place Jesus goes in this passage is tending to your inner life with God. Um, tending to your inner life with God. He basically says you've forsaken um, your interior life is what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. He says on, goes on and says, What do you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites? For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. Um, basically, you've forsaken your soul, and it's dying inside. It's basically like by not cleaning the inside of the cup... Um, you're like this person who is like eating off of a plate with decaying food on it. And that's manifesting itself outwardly in your life. For example, by affecting things like not being a person of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Um, and Jesus specifically points on the inside to greed and self-indulgence. Also self-righteousness in the next verse. But I want to just for a second take self-indulgence. Interestingly, like Jesus, Paul connects self indulgence to death. She who is self indulgent is dead even while she lives. There's something, clearly, there's something about a self indulgent way of living that's essentially as good as dying. Isn't that profound and terrifying? (laughs) Um, Like, you might as well be dead. Basically, if if your if your mode of living is just to essentially indulge yourself, then you you might as well be dead. Paul basically says. Jesus says, you're just within you're dying. You're dying like so a self-indulgent lifestyle is just a way of killing you, a way of dying on the inside. Um, but what's important to note is that the Pharisees would have had no grid for this accusation. So the accusation that you guys are self-indulgent. So I mean. I have to assume that if someone walked up to a Pharisee and said, okay, someone's going to accuse you of a hundred negative things, what might you guess are hundred negative things you could be accused of? I can't imagine that self-indulgence would have made the top 100. I mean, the Pharisees saw themselves as the people in society that are resisting the pleasures of the world. I mean, we adhere to this strict food diet according to the Torah. We separate ourselves from the very self-seeking, indulgent people that you hang out with, Jesus. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous that you would accuse us of being self-indulgent. And yet Jesus says, guys, you just found a religious way of living to gratify yourself, right? Being, being called rabbi, getting the best seats in market, and." feasts and places of honor and things like this. You just found religious ways to just indulge yourself. Um, My guess is that's less likely to be, like religious legalism is probably not your social drug of choice. It's probably a lot of other things. It's probably a multi-day Netflix binge. It's probably scrolling Instagram until you absolutely collapse and that's the last thing you give mental space to most nights, right? It's probably a lot of things like that. Um, which that's basically all of us (laughs) in some form or fashion. Part of my goal in the sermon is to help you not remove yourself from Matthew 23 just because you don't think you're legalistic. Although I will say, there is a tinge of religious legalism in all of us. Um, and It it will creep its its ugly head in every generation, Um, in some some more than others. Ronald Wilhauser said this, Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindingly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate in which it's difficult not just to think about God or pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual. And when I read that, that just struck me, just resonated with me. We're we're more busy than bad. We're more distracted than we are non-spiritual. I think that's so true. So these days, someone might ask a question like, to to the Lord, like in prayer, like, God, where are you in my life? Within 30 seconds, we check a text message, a notification comes on, and then we remember that thing that absolutely can't wait that we have to do. A week later, we come back to God and we say, God, where are you in my life? Only this time we're a little bit more bitter and frustrated towards God. And this is happening on a grand scale. We think God's forsaking us or something like that as people are becoming so more and more struggling to find God and things like this and the spiritual disciplines and communing with God. Um, The habits we form, Alan Noble says, uh, the habits we adopt form our desires which drive our beliefs. When those habits form desires for immediacy, superficiality, Continual engagement and instant gratification—we should expect our beliefs to reflect these desires. And this profound. So let, let's take, for example, an age-old truth given to us by the Hebrew poets um, of waiting on the Lord. Okay, if it's true that uh, our habits uh, are forming in us desires for immediacy, superficiality, continual engagement and instant gratification, um, then that will begin to form our beliefs and expectations about God. So we may say that we're in favor of waiting on the Lord. We may say that. But our habits may be working against it. Does that make sense? I think this is so much of... we, We need to be more discerning as a people, especially in this day and age. And I think if the people of God, the church in America are more discerning about how we engage our habits, we will actually have a life the world looks at and says, that looks meaningful. Because they're not getting very much meaning from their Netflix binges and from the superficiality of spending their time living on these different kinds of, you know, whatever it may be, right? Um, They're looking for depth. They are looking for emotional health and spiritual depth. They are, whether they know it or not. Um, and I think we're in a time when we can we can show something else. C.S. Lewis's uh, spiritual mentor W.F. Adams said, "Hurry is the death of prayer," and I think this is this is so true. Hurry kills prayer. And God's inviting. I think He's inviting us. So we tend to our soul. We don't neglect our soul, um, as Jesus is telling the talking about the Pharisees. That we create space for God to be active, for God to be present. One of the things that I think is beautiful that Jesus is doing in this passage is he's exposing the ways in which the Pharisees have lost a sense of the sacred in their life. And by doing that, he's encouraging his disciples to not lose a sense of the sacred. Because remember, he's talking to his disciples in this passage. And this kind of comes from the verses in 16 through 19, where uh, Jesus, it's mostly about how they find religious ways to break their verbal commitments, right? Um, You know, you guys say, if you swear by uh, the temple, that's not a big deal. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you got to keep your commitment, right? And Jesus, not only does he rebuke them for not keeping their commitments and trying to find these loopholes, but he actually says, he actually reminds them of what's truly sacred. He says, What's more significant, the, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And then he gives another example with the altar. And basically, the Pharisees are going through life in a way that they've lost a sense of the sacred, the sense of how God is, is in moments and in things and in places and in amongst people. Amen? That that makes life, I think, so beautiful and appealing. I was listening to a, a podcast the other day, this podcast host um, was basically saying how, like, he had put out something on his social media um, back in the fall, essentially suggesting, like, um, have we are we losing are we missing something with like you know Christian parents enrolling their kids in like two sports, three sports at a time, and you know, and these club teams were like families are missing like twenty Sundays a year or something like that. Guys, you would not believe the responses he got from Christian parents. Like, you would think he said, Jesus is not the Son of God. I mean, totally, like, how, I mean, all these Christian parents, like, just rushing to defend little Johnny's love of soccer. And just like, how could you possibly suggest this? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, family first, man, right? Like, focus on the family. Like, who cares if we can't make it to church as much as we used to? Like, we're, we'll come when we can, but we're prioritizing family or something like that. And, and this, pod, this podcast host, like, couldn't believe, like, the level of, like, uh, reaction he got for simply suggesting that regularly, regular weekly worship might be something worth protecting. Like, I don't know, maybe that's something worth protecting. I mean, society's certainly not going to help you protect it. And there's things more and more in life where if we're going to have sacred things in our life, I guarantee you our, our technology distraction and our quick, fast-paced society, it's not going to help you protect it. You are going to have to be vigilant to say, I want to keep this sacred between me and God. I want to keep this thing. I want to create sacred spaces um, in my life. Where I'm protecting it for God. That's holy. That's for God. Um, that's going to take more and more vigilance from, from us. Um, you guys up for the challenge? Because <laughs> don't you want to be emotionally healthy people. And, and people of, of spiritual depth. I think that's, that's the call. And that really I think is the call of Matthew 23. I really do think I'm preaching the spirit of the text. Even if the challenges are different in the 21st century. Um, So I'm going to go invite the worship team up. So this whole passage is, is mostly about, as I said, what Jesus is saying, what to be by contrast, right? But there are a few verses where Jesus actually pauses and says, but you, and tells his disciples what he wants them to be like, not just what he wants them to avoid becoming. And what does he say when he says what he wants them to be like? He says this, but you... Are not, called, are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. I take, I take this, by the way, to be a Trinitarian verse. So I take this to be the Holy Spirit. You have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The next verse he says, So that's how to engage your life in God, the triune God. And then how do we engage life with others? It's this The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Basically, Jesus says this. The only thing Jesus says to be like in this passage is, I want my disciples to be people who immerse themselves in the life of the Trinity. Amen? People who are saying, Holy Spirit, you are my teacher. What, what are you saying amidst the noise of my society and my time? Holy Spirit, teach me. What are you saying? What kind of person do you want me to be? How do you want me to live and walk out this thing? And then God, Father, I'm in relationship with you, receiving your love over me, drinking in the love of the Father, being in relationship with you as a, as a beloved child of God, a child of heaven. And then Jesus, you are my instructor. I want to follow in the way of Christ. Your way champions and trumps the different competing worldviews and lifestyle options that are just on display for us. Jesus, what is your way? You are my instructor, my teacher. And then basically, as we relate to others, is seek to be people who are servant-hearted and humble. Just seek to be people who are walking out humility. Um, you guys can go ahead and begin playing um, as we go into this this uh, final song, I just want to invite any of you guys who would just like, who are just saying, I want to slow down, become more responsive, to be more present to God, to the people around me, to my own soul. I just want to invite you to stand if you'd like prayer. Okay, well that's mostly everyone. Why don't we do this? Why don't we have everyone stand? And why don't you put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you? And if you if you're not around someone, go find someone. I want everyone to have a have a hand on someone's shoulder. <laughs> Let me pray for us. God, would you help us to slow down and rest in you? To be more present to you, to the person in front of us, more present to our own soul. God, would you come, Holy Spirit, in this moment? Ask that you administer in this moment. That Jesus. As you told us in this passage, that we would just cast ourselves, we would immerse ourselves in the life of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. You would grow us as people of humility and service, because that's life. Ultimately, self indulgence, when it's excessive, begins to breed death. So God, open us up, Lord. God, I just right now just say, let there be no shame, no guilt at all about anything right now. Where we just ask, what are the ways that step by step you can call us into more life? You can call us into a people that are not so hurried that we can be present to those around us and grow to the people. The disciples that you are asking for in Matthew 23. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.